and welcome to episode 178 of the Tennis Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. My name is Nick. Every week, either me or my sidekick host bring a top 10-ish list, along with fun facts and trivia. The other person doesn't know what that list is ahead of time, and they try to guess the whole thing in real time, along with you, the beautiful folks at home. My sidekick host this week is Bernadette, host of the amazing true crime podcast, Murderific. Can I call you Burn? Burn is what people call me, yes. Okay, how you doing, Burn? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Of course, very excited to have you. Murderific, your podcast covers local and worldwide cases, lesser known cases, the missing, mass murders, domestic abuse. But I would love for you to give kind of a introduction to yourself and to your show so the listeners can, anyone that's not familiar with your show, they can get to know you a little bit better. Well, my name is Bernadette and I'm from the state of Maine. So we cover a lot of Maine cases. Usually my co-host is either my husband or my sister. My other job, I'm a florist and I set up weddings. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And you're in the state of Maine. Remind me, which part of Maine? Near Portland. Near Portland. Mm -hmm. And have you made the pilgrimage up to Bangor to see Stephen King's house? I used to live in Bangor. So yes, I've been to Stephen King's house. And there's also Mount Hope Cemetery where some of Pet Cemetery was Mm. found. I've been there. I've actually been to the Pet Cemetery house. Um, in Maine also, which is amazing. I'm jealous. <laughs> I, I've been to Maine once when I was a teenager, uh, but I want to go again. And I didn't do any of the Stephen King stuff when I was there. So uh, anyone listening knows I'm a big Stephen King fan. So one of these days I'll make it up there and maybe you and I can uh, get a coffee or something while I'm there. Road trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the people listening, they know by now based on the title of this episode, as well as my guest, we're going to be talking about true crime today. I will give a quick trigger warning. Uh, This episode will contain very uncomfortable topics like murder, kidnapping, and more. We won't go as in the weeds as a traditional true crime podcast. I'll keep it pretty high level, but some of that's just unavoidable, so I wanted to give some of our listeners a fair warning. Today, we're talking about the top 10, actually, no, the top 10-ish, most searched true crime stories on Google in 2021. Interesting. I had to think about this a little bit because we're six months into 2022. There was some very famous new true crime cases in 2021, like Gabby, what's her? (laughs) What's her name? Gabby. Yeah. Petito? (laughs) Yes. Was that it? Yes. Yes. She's not on this, actually. These are all true crime cases that came about well before the year started, 2021. So these are all very famous, well-known true crime cases. My source is, uh, there's a blog post on edwardscurby.com. They looked at Google Trends and they said that using a list of true crime stories from popular websites or true crime stories that have been featured on shows and podcasts, we gathered the top Google searched true crime cases in all 50 states, including DC, between November 2020 and November 2021. So put it more simply, What are people searching on Google most often as it relates to true crime? In addition to the top nine is what I have, I also can tell you what each state, the people of each state are searching for most often. Well, I'm probably going to be way off. I was thinking 2021, but some things are just people think about all the time. Some true crime stories are just universal. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't consider that when I should have thought of that when I told you. (laughs) The 2021 that you were thinking true crime cases that happened in 2021. My bad. (laughs) 
It's what people searched in the year 2021. Yeah. From all of true crime history. Yeah. So, with that in mind, Burn, do you want to give a first guess of what you think people in the United States are searching for most often as it relates to true crime cases? Oh, my God. <laughs> Where do you start, right? Right. Ted Bundy's in there for sure still. Ted Bundy is not in the top what? nine. What? Yeah. Wow. I think some of these in the top nine, not all of them, but a few of them I think were bumped up because of like some documentaries that came out during the year. So more people searching them. Ted Bundy's had a million documentaries, but I don't know if he had any major ones come out in 2021 that I can recall. Let's see. The Turpin siblings. No. Oh, boy. <laughs> you're, off, you're off to a rough start, but we are going to get you on the right track. Let's go back to Ted Bundy. So Ted Bundy's not on here, but who are some of his peers, let's call them, that might be on here? Uh, the Killer Clown, John Gacy. The Killer Clown, John Wayne Gacy, is number eight. The eighth most Google searched true crime case during last year. Huh. John Wayne Gacy, uh, I'm sure you are familiar with his story, at least somewhat. He was the killer clown. He was most searched in the state of Illinois on Google. He was known as the killer clown and assaulted and murdered at least 33 young men and boys. He's known as the killer clown because he regularly performed at children's hospitals and charitable events as Pogo the Clown or Patches the Clown. Now, John Wayne Gacy, piece of shit, asshole, he sucks, all that. But I have to admit that Pogo is a pretty good name for a clown. Agreed. Just objectively. Yeah. Yes. Typically, Gacy would lure a victim to his home, dupe him into donning handcuffs on the pretext of demonstrating a magic trick, then rape and torture his captive before killing him by either asphyxiation or strangulation. One of the things that made this case so famous is that 26 of his victims were found buried under the crawlspace of his normal-sized suburban home in Illinois. There was also some buried elsewhere on his property. One of the most amazing things about that story was that he invited the police into his home. Yes. Like, yeah. that's very arrogant. He got away with so much for so long. Part of it was he was plugged into the community. He was prominent in the community. He owned, I don't know how many, but at least a few KFC restaurants in the area. He was in local politics. Don't know on this, but he might have been involved in like Boy Scouts, things like that. So he was well known in the community, which was by design. It led him to finding all of his victims, I think, were uh, a lot of the boys he knew from like contract work for his construction business. Um, and it made the community trust him, like the police. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I did watch that doc. Which one? The last one. On Netflix? Yeah, the one directed yeah. by Berlinger, I think. Okay. Yeah. I have not seen that one, but I did see the one on Peacock. Mm-hmm. I forget what it's called, but Devil in Disguise, I think. Mm-hmm. That came out in 2021, as well as the Netflix documentary. So those two things, I think, bumped this asshole up. <laughs> I wanted to come back to the crawl space, though. Yeah. 26 bodies buried under the home in the crawl space. The crawl space is, I don't know, I mean, you have to duck and crouch to walk through there. So he would often make some of his victims bury the prior victims before he killed them. Stop. Really? I don't know how often he did this, but at least a few times he would have people over, like teenage boys over to his house, 
and he would ask them to dig. I think the bodies were wrapped, and they didn't necessarily know they were bodies. They probably assumed, but were, didn't want to know, and they buried it, and then he would kill them that night. Right. The crawlspace thing, I don't know. There's like a type of murderer that will bury a body somewhere else, and then like the type of murderer that will keep a body in their house. It's like a power trip almost, you know? Yeah. Some serial killers will keep a trophy of their victims, a lock of hair or their driver's license, things like that. But John Wayne Gacy liked to keep them on his property, right under his feet, mm. which is fucked up. And, you know, 26 bodies in a crawl space, just, just incredible. Like, just thinking about the logistics of fitting them all in there is a thing on its own. And it's demented. And it's crazy to think that because people noticed the smell when they came in the house right. or even his neighbors noticed the smell. But they were there for, he had bodies under there for five plus years before they were discovered. During the dock, one of the detectives who went down to the crawl space said, like, there was like this sludgy part where it was like muddy and a body was in there. And he said, this is really disgusting, but he said, like, he saw thousands of little white worms come up. Yeah. And he was like, oh, this is, this fucked up. This is something real. And I like, can't get that image out of my head now. It's so gross. Now, can you imagine being one of the people that discover this and have to uncover all 26 bodies and identify them, match the remains up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's unimaginable. Like we all hear, you know, a lot of us that uh, are interested in true crime are very familiar with this case. It's been covered in a million movies, documentaries, podcasts, books, etc. So we kind of become, you know, I hate to say it, but almost... Desensitized. Desensitized, yeah, to the thought of 26 people under a small house. We can't imagine how horrific that is. But luckily, he was eventually caught. His conviction was uh, then covered the most homicides in U.S. legal history, and he was sentenced to death in 1980 before being executed in 1994. Good riddance. Good riddance. Uh, And that's John Wayne Gacy, number eight. So why don't we stay in serial killer land, which would be a fucking terrible amusement park. <laughs> and tell me, what other serial killers do you think could be in this top nine? Eileen, uh, maybe. Eileen, yeah. Eileen Warnos. Do you think she's above or below Gacy? Above. Yes, she's number five. Gacy was eight. So Eileen Warnos, she killed six people between 1989 and 1990. And the states in the U.S. where she was Google searched most often last year were Idaho and Mississippi. Eileen's an interesting one because, you know, it sounds cliche to say because this is what they're going to say in every documentary about her. But you don't hear about a lot of women serial killers. Nope. But she's probably the most famous one. Yes, definitely. At least in America. So in 1989 through 1990, while engaging in street prostitution along highways in Florida, she shot dead and robbed seven of her male clients. She claimed that her clients had either raped or attempted to rape her and that all of the homicides were committed in self-defense. Now, I do believe that some, if not all of the clients, did attempt to sexually assault her. But yeah, obviously you can't kill people. I'm sure she was raped many, many, many times, for sure. Well, and she had a brutal childhood as well. Yes. like In that regard. Literally the most trauma I've ever heard of. <laughs> Her childhood Mm -hmm. was unbelievably sad and really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Not to steal the name of the movie that came out about her, but it 
she was stewed up in this perfect childhood soup that's going to create a monster as an adult. Right. She's a product of her upbringing, which was very traumatic and sad. I definitely think that her first victim, she was raped for sure. But I think she developed like she finally had a sense of power, like murdering someone. And I think she just wanted to continue that because she had never had power any of her life. Right. And I think once she killed the first one and she probably felt justified in doing it, she realized it's okay to murder these men because all men are pigs. All men are evil. All people are evil. And she said pretty much almost exactly that in a statement. In fact, I'll read that now. So in 2001, long after she'd been captured, she wrote a petition to the Florida Supreme Court wanting to dismiss her legal counsel and terminate all pending appeals because she had been sentenced to death. But she was saying, I want to forfeit any appeals. And she wrote in her letter, I killed those men, robbed them as cold as ice, and I'd do it again too. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. I'm so sick of hearing this she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, I'm sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm the one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. Well, she may have been sane at the time that she said that, but when she was put to death, she was not mentally well Mm -hmm. at all. No. (laughs) I didn't include this in my notes, but I remember in my research seeing something about uh, that either before her death or maybe even after her death, they had determined that she had a ton of psychological, like clinical psychological issues, behavior disorders, things like that. So, which is almost a guarantee given her childhood, right? like we said. In October 2002, she was executed by lethal injection for her portrayal of Eileen Warnos in the biographical film Monster from 2003. Charlize Theron won the Academy Award for Best Actress. And that's the first time, 2003, you know, I was a teenager when that movie came out. That was the first time I'd heard of Eileen Warnos. And one of the kind of formative films that made me interested in true crime Mm -hmm. as a genre. Wow. So she's always been of interest to me. And everyone else, apparently. Yeah. Number five (laughs) on this list. I would say, let's see, there's two more serial killers in the top 10. I say we knock them all out since we're here. The rest of these are a little more uh, complex. Uh, uh, Ramirez? Yeah, Ramirez. And I've said it before, but of every serial killer I've heard about or read about or researched, Richard Ramirez is one of the top ones for being like the scariest to me. Oh, God, he's terrifying. He's terrible. (laughs) He's number six, right behind Eileen. He was most searched in the state of California. Richard Ramirez's highly publicized home invasion and murder crime spree terrorized the residents of the greater Los Angeles area and San Francisco Bay Area from June 1984 until August 1985. And you forget, now, looking back, that all his bullshit happened in just over a year's time. Oh, I forgot about that. He really overachieved. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's just 14 months here in total. Uh, Ramirez, he used a wide variety of weapons and different murder methods, including handguns, knives, machete, tire iron, a claw hammer. And that's one of the things that made him so hard to identify is usually a serial killer will develop an MO. They will get comfortable using a certain type of weapon or method to kill their victims. 
And you'll start seeing a pattern with that. Whereas his murder methods were kind of unpredictable and all over the place. Right. And a lot of times you hear, you know, things about how the police didn't do a good job with an investigation, but they really went above and beyond to get that guy for sure. Yeah. Like old school detective work. Yes. <laughs> Did you see the documentary on, on Netflix about him? Yes. Yes. How yes. they were like staking out the dentist and stuff. Yes, it's so good. And I love the story of his capture, where it was almost like a citizen's arrest. Right. Where the community came together and took this guy out. It's perfect, poetic justice. It's just too bad it didn't happen sooner. Right. He enjoyed frequently degrading and humiliating his victims, especially those who survived his attacks for who, or whom he decided not to kill. And that's the other thing. He killed 13 people that we know of, but he raped or assaulted or beat a lot more people than that, that he'd let live. Didn't he kill children? I think he did kill at least one or two. Right. Yeah. During his attacks, he would force them to profess that they love Satan or telling them that they swear on Satan that there's nothing else in the home worth stealing. And my, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on that. He also did the famous pentagram on his hand in the courtroom. Right, his courtroom antics. This was one of the things that was kind of spurring the satanic panic in America during this time. I don't think he was actually a practicing Satanist. I think he just liked fucking with people and scaring people. Yeah, I think he liked the but, attention. Yeah, and the attention. <laughs> yeah. He killed and destroyed so many lives, but he never expressed any remorse. And he died in June 2013 from cancer while awaiting execution. He had spent 24 years on death row. Richard Ramirez, uh, for more on him, I just covered him recently on episode 161, the best true crime documentaries of the year. So you can listen to that for more. But Richard Ramirez is a son of a bitch. <laughs> bad teeth, too. He did have bad teeth. <laughs> yeah. But he also had lots of girlfriends, surprisingly. He did, yeah. <laughs> I think he had girlfriends and maybe even he got married uh, while in prison, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yep. These serial killers, same with Ted Bundy and others, where it's like, they get this little fangirl following. It's really weird. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I know all about having fangirls, believe me. They <laughs> won't leave me alone, but I'm not a murderer. I told you I'd stop texting. <laughs> <laughs> we'll discuss this offline. Okay. <laughs> okay, one more serial killer to, to knock out here from the 70s. Oh, Golden State? No, that's a good, that's a good guess. Dennis Radar? No. Fuck that guy. Damn it. I'm blanking. So think uh, Northeast, not too far from Maine. I'm totally blanking. <laughs> okay. Son of Sam. Oh, you know what? For some reason, he's never like on my radar. Like, I don't think of him as scary. Me either. He like doesn't even register as like a serial killer to me for some reason. But I know he killed lots of people. Like couples mostly, correct? Yes, and he shot nine others that did he he killed six, nine more were wounded, and I agree with you. David Berkowitz is one of the most famous Sam Sam's one of the most famous true crime cases ever. And I don't want this to come off the wrong way, you know. Right. All sensitivities respected all that. However, he's one of the most boring cases, I think. <laughs> I think so too. He's lame. He's <laughs> I don't know. He just, and the way he killed is like he'd run up and shoot people and then run away. Right. Which, terrible for that person, obviously, but for David Berkowitz, like, 
I don't know. It's like he couldn't even face his own crimes while he's doing them. There's a product killer and a process killer. David was into the process. He got a thrill out of the kill. Whereas someone like, well, he's not on this list, but Jeffrey Dahmer, product killer. He didn't enjoy killing. He just wanted the end product, the dead body. Neither way is correct to each their own, but (laughs) David Berkowitz liked to uh, shoot a gun and then get the hell out of Dodge. And then say that he was possessed by a dog. Yes, which he later recanted, but I'll tell you about that. So David Berkowitz, he's way up at number three. Oh, wow. Yeah. So even though you and I agree he's boring as far as serial killers go, he did have the Netflix series this year that did really well. The Son of Sam Confessions or something like that. Mm-hmm. I forget what it's called. I had some problems with that documentary, but I'll get to that in a minute. This case, David Berkowitz, was most searched in, on Google in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. New York is where these, this all took place. He's also known as the 44 caliber killer and son of Sam. He's an American serial killer who pleaded guilty to eight shootings that began in New York City in July 1976. Using a 44 special caliber bulldog revolver, he killed six people and wounded seven others within a year by July 1977. It terrorized New Yorkers and gained worldwide notoriety. He eluded the biggest police manhunt in the history of New York City up to that point while leaving letters that mocked the police and promised further crimes, which were highly publicized by the press. Finally, he was arrested in 1977, August of 77. He confessed to all the shootings and initially claimed to have been obeying the orders of a demon manifested in the form of his neighbor's dog, Sam. That's how he got the name Son of Sam. But he later admitted this was a hoax. The whole story was made up. He was found mentally competent to stand trial, sentenced to six consecutive life sentences, which he is still serving. He's still alive. Uh, However, about 20 years later, during the mid-90s, he amended his confession to claim that he had been a member of a violent satanic cult that orchestrated the incidents as ritual murder. And some law enforcement believe this, but he remains the only person ever charged with the shootings. And that 2021 Netflix docuseries is really what that dives into, is the theory that Berkowitz was part of a cult, part of a larger cult that went unpunished in these crimes. Do you think that's true, or do you think he was a a lone wolf? Yeah. I think he was a lone wolf. I mean, obviously, I'm very familiar with the case, but I'm not an expert. But from what I know, I think he just jumped on that bandwagon as far as confessing that. I think people don't want to believe that this, you know, kind of innocent looking little mailman from, where is it, Yonkers, New York, could kill so many people and cause such widespread panic. You know, women were dyeing their hair that summer so that they wouldn't be killed by Son of Sam because he liked, I think, brunettes, if I recall. (laughs) So, I don't know. Do you believe it? No. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I leave some room for possibility. There's, There's a few compelling points in that Netflix series, but overall, I think he's just a lone wolf. Yeah. And a jackass. (laughs) Right. Let's leave serial killer land. Uh, We're going to close the door on that amusement park and never come back. (laughs) There are some other true crime cases that I've never covered on this show. Well, that's not true. Two of them I have. And I was looking through your episode catalog. I don't think you've covered these either. They're all famous. They're all well known, but neither of us have covered them. So that in mind, give me another guess. Eliza Lamb. Great guess. She was on the list, but not in the top nine. She was a little higher. Oh. Uh, Eliza Lamb. Give me like your 30-second 
elevator pitch version on what you think happened to her? Oh, God. Oh, my God. Where do you start? I know. I think she was having some sort of psychiatric episode and somehow yep. got, got into the water container. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And that's the end of it. That's what I think. Totally agree. If you were to summarize it all, I think that's what happened. That said, the footage of her in that elevator haunts me. Like, yeah. it's such super creepy, traumatic thing to watch. And it looks very much like there's someone out in that hallway. But I, I believe it's just her having a psychotic break, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, so she's not in the top nine. <laughs> All right. John Bonet. John Bonet. I was sure John Bonet Ramsey would be in the top nine, but she's not. She was the most searched case in Kentucky, though, but oh. not enough to get in the top nine. Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony, yes. Yes. Casey Anthony is way up here. In fact, she's number one. What? Awesome. Yeah. Number one most Google search case. <laughs> awesome, but not awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I talked about this case recently on that, on episode 166, where we covered the most watched TV trials. She was on that list. And I just, when I was researching her case then and for today's episode, I just couldn't believe, still can't believe that she got away with this. She had a hell of a defense team, I'll tell you that. I mean, basically, what the case proved is that if you get rid of a body for long enough and you can't tell how someone died, your chances of getting away with it greatly improve, you know? Yeah. So and they, if you distract a jury with things lies. that aren't relevant to the case. Yeah. And lies. Yeah. Well, the death of Kaylee Anthony, she was a two-year-old American girl who lived in Orlando, Florida with her mother, Casey Anthony, and her maternal grandparents, George and Cindy Anthony. This was in 2008. In July of that year, she was reported missing in a 911 call made by her grandmother, Cindy, who said she had not seen Kaylee for 31 days. Mm. I don't understand. If my two-year-old was missing for a half hour, I would have called. I mean, I don't know if I'd call the police, but I don't know. It just depends. But would. I would be freaking out. Yeah. yeah. 31 days, she finally calls the police. And she said she hadn't seen her granddaughter, Kaylee, for 31 days and that her daughter, Casey... Casey's car smelled like a dead body had been inside it, which she later took back in court. Yeah. Casey, Anthony, the mother, she lied to detectives telling them that Kaylee had been kidnapped by a nanny, Zanny the nanny, the prior <laughs> month, and that she had been trying to find her, but too frightened to alert the authorities. She was charged with first-degree murder in October and pleaded not guilty. There's no body at this point. Finally, in December of that year, this is five months after reported missing, two-year-old Kaylee's skeletal remains were found with a blanket inside a laundry bag in a wooded area not far from the Anthony home. I mean, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff here. If, yeah. If, and that's true for all these cases, you know, just because yeah. of time and recovering so many, I can only give the highlights or lowlights, depending on how you look at it. But Wasn't where Kaylee's body was found, they had searched before, which, which is, in fact, that's a little bit scary to me is that they searched and then later Kaylee's body was found there. I'm having trouble remembering mm -hmm. that could be. Yeah. But it's uh, if I'm remembering the body was believed to have been in the car for a long time. Casey's car. Yeah. Because it smelled like a dead body. And I think she didn't know what to do with it. She was a very impulsive young woman. I think she was in her early 20s when all this happened. And she was a pathological liar. 
as well. Yeah. She told police. Yeah, go ahead. I think that she believed her child was holding her back from life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Zanny the nanny. I mean, it doesn't take an expert to theorize that Zanny the nanny is Xanax, <laughs> right. and that was her nickname for giving <laughs> Xanax to Kaylee to what? kind of put her to sleep for a few hours so that Casey could go out and go to the club or hang out with her friends or whatever she wanted to do without worrying about being a mother. And she gave Kaylee too much, probably on accident, but who knows? Yeah. Then freaked out, didn't know what to do about it. I don't know. But there's so much that doesn't add up. I still can't get over the grandparents not telling anyone for 31 days. Well, I think that she was putting their, her parents off too. She was saying, oh, Kaylee's here, Kaylee's there. She was like avoiding, avoiding them also. So. No, that's definitely true. But I'm, after a weekend or two, I'm like, okay, where is Kaylee? My granddaughter's been here every day of her life for two years and now she's not here for a month. I'll move on though. It's just weird. So the prosecution sought the death penalty for Casey Anthony, alleged what you said, that she wished to free herself from parental responsibilities and murdered her daughter by administering chloroform and applying duct tape. But the defense team led by Jose Baez contended that Casey lied about this and other issues because of a dysfunctional upbringing, which they said included sexual abuse by her father. Now, they never mentioned that again. There was no proof ever brought forth in the trial of that. I think it was purely done to distract and deflect from what really happened here. For sure. And they said that she may have died in the pool and that like her dad like covered it up. And I felt really bad for the parents because I know they wanted to protect Casey, but I don't think they have a relationship. Actually, I don't think the mother has a relationship with her anymore at all. Yeah, one of the parents is still close with Casey and one of them's not. I don't remember which is which, but that's what I talked about last time I talked about this case is I don't know how you can be someone like Casey Anthony, because I guess, spoiler alert, she was not charged with murder. She's (laughs) outliving a free life now. She essentially faces no consequences for anything. Although there's no doubt in my mind that she must have done it or been involved. I don't know how you can be Casey Anthony and get even a fucking job now, because everyone knows that name and face and story. She's a monster, for sure. Yeah. And Time Magazine described the case as the social media trial of the century. I think it was one of the first big mainstream trials that kind of, quote unquote, benefited from social media, because it was 2008, you know, Facebook, Twitter were a thing at this time, so it really blew up. Yeah, that's Casey Anthony. (laughs) Happy times. Let's never talk about her again. Yes, please. (laughs) Let me do a quick recap for the listeners. We had John Wayne Gacy at number eight, Richard Ramirez at number six, Eileen Warnos at five, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam, at number three, and Casey Anthony at number one. Okay. Let's see. Jody Arias? Great guess, but no. What? Surprising. All right, Chris Watts. No, that's just outside the top nine. He's in like the... 10 to 15 range, but he's not in the top nine. What about Rodney Alcala? Rodney Alcala, no. The game show killer? Yep. De- uh, the date night, get dating show killer, whatever. He's yeah. Called. His story's fucked up, too. Yeah, yeah. Natalie Holloway? No. Nope. <laughs> uh, Sylvia but see, this Michael. is why I love having you on the show, because you can just rattle these off all night. <laughs> uh, do you want a hint? Wait, Israel Keys. 
No, no. Oh, All fuck right. that guy, though. I hate that asshole. I'm out of ideas. All right. Let's say uh, a very famous alert that Amber. people get on their cell phones. Amber alert. Yeah. Do you know the story behind the Amber alert? I do. I think it was just the anniversary of the Amber alert, I believe. I'm not sure. Possible. Mm-hmm. But I had never heard this story. I mean, obviously, I've heard of the Amber alert. If you live in America, sometimes you'll wake up at two in the morning to a, like a, a really terrible screeching cell phone alert called an Amber Alert. In the United States, Amber Alerts are distributed via commercial and public radio stations, internet radio, satellite radio, TV stations, text messages, and more. And the system originated in 1996 when Amber Hagerman was abducted while riding her bike in Arlington, Texas. Four days after her abduction, near midnight, Amber's naked body was discovered in a creek behind an apartment complex with severe laceration wounds to her neck. The site of the discovery was less than five miles or eight kilometers from where she was abducted. And this I did not know until I researched this, but her murder remains unsolved as of today. Oh, I guess I don't know the details of that one very well, though I should. Might be worth doing on your show sometime. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is an unsolved case. It's an open case. But anyone that gets an Amber Alert, when we all have, this is where that comes from. I've heard people, and I probably said it myself too, like, oh man, I hate these Amber Alerts. They wake me up in the middle of the night or whatever. But they have saved lives. So it's a necessary evil. So isn't there a thing that Amber Alert, like there has to be a car involved in the Amber Alerts? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, that sounds right, because they always give like a license plate or car description as well. Right. Because someone for the Amber Hagerman case, someone did observe her being kidnapped. A neighbor saw her being taken in a car. They didn't know where that car went, obviously, and she was found dead. So that that could be where that comes from is kidnapping by car. Right. It's a scary world for sure. But we're not done with kidnapping because an equally, if not more terrifying kidnapping case is number nine. Let's see. Uh, Is it the Ariel Castro story? Ariel Castro, it is, yeah. Oh, it is? Number nine. Oh, wow. It is, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was very unfamiliar with this before. I mean, I'd I'd seen the headlines. I knew like the basic gist, but I never dug into it until today. Mm -hmm. Crazy story, man. Do you know anything about this one? I think he kidnapped one of his daughter's friends. And then, like, another girl, and then another girl, and didn't he, like, get them pregnant, and... Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you all the amazing details that all our listeners are so happy they're here to listen to. (laughs) Ariel Castro kidnappings, most searched on Google in Ohio, the state it took place in. So, between 2002 and 2004, recently fired school bus driver Ariel Castro, and actually, let me pause there. I didn't include this in notes, but when I was reading it, He was fired because he would leave kids on the bus while he went and got lunch. He (laughs) and a couple other things like that, like really stupid boneheaded things that you don't do as a school bus driver. That's why he got fired. So he's just a bad, bad egg all around. But his name's Ariel Castro. He kidnapped Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry and Georgina de Jesus Mm. and held them captive in his home near Cleveland, Ohio. He kidnapped the victims by offering them a ride. I'll stop here. Everyone out there, don't ever take a ride from someone you don't know. Ever. (laughs) Ever. Right. Just let that be a rule. 
I think most people know that these days, but don't do it. The scary part is, is one of the girls knew him. And so, like, she trusted him and he took advantage of that. Crazy. And was held captive for many years, which I'm about to get to. He drove them to his home, lured them inside, took them to the basement and restrained them. There's so much disturbing shit with this case that I'm going to leave out. So Mm. we're not all having nightmares tonight. But I'll tell you that the diaries kept by his victims spoke of forced sexual conduct, of being locked in a dark room, of anticipating the next session of abuse, of being chained to a wall, of being held like a prisoner of war, of being treated like an animal, of continuous abuse, and of desiring freedom. One of the kidnappees, I don't remember which one, but one of them was impregnated five times and he forced an abortion on her, a homemade abortion each time. But one of them did have a daughter, finally. It was Amanda Berry. And in May 2013, so around 10 years or so after being captured, she was able to make contact with Castro's neighbors, leading to the escape of her and her six-year-old daughter. It's because Castro had left the house that day and Amanda Berry realized that he had failed to lock the big inside door, although the exterior storm door was still bolted. Berry screamed for help when she saw neighbors through the screen door. Neighbors came, they heard, they kicked a hole through the bottom of the storm door, and Barry crawled through carrying her six-year-old daughter, which was the daughter of her kidnapper. Police then rescued the other two women, Night and Day Jesus, and arrested Castro within hours. Finally, in 2013, Castro pleaded guilty to 937 criminal counts of rape, kidnapping, and aggravated murder as part of a plea bargain. He was sentenced to life imprisonment plus 1,000 years in prison without the possibility of parole. But don't worry, or do worry, because just one month into his sentence, he killed himself in his prison cell. Ugh, that makes me so angry. I know. Did you hear that 911 call? Where Amanda Berry, like, says her name, and, oh, my God, you need to hear it. She's like, I'm I read the transcript of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think she says something like, I'm free now, something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Like, it's another thing, I kind of mentioned it with John Wayne Gacy, where we hear the story so many times, we become desensitized to the brutal details of it. But in this case, can you imagine being kidnapped against your will? Not just kidnapped, but held captive and tortured, and sexually, physically, emotionally for 10 years. And then you you probably think you're never going to get out. And then you do. Like just that emotional, overwhelming release. I can't imagine that. When I hear stories like that, I think about how many, I know it's terrifying, but there's got to be lots of people that are in the same situation. You know what I mean? Like there are people that are in situations just like that. And they could be your neighbor. You'd never know. You never know. Yeah. Because so many of these cases the person, their neighbors would say, he's just a normal guy. Or he was a little weird, but never, you know, didn't think he'd harm a fly. (laughs) This guy harmed a lot more than a fly. Right. Yeah, this story's brutal. That's all I got on it, but it's, uh, it's a sad one. Yeah. So, that was number nine. You just need four and two. Oh, it's just two more? Okay, are any of them from this year? Like anything that happened this year? No, and again, I'm sorry you did all that research for nothing. I really fucked up. (laughs) Maybe we could come back and do this again, though, with that list. Let's see, OJ. Yeah, OJ had to be on here, right? Yeah. He's number two. Yeah. 
O.J. Simpson, another one who got away with it. Oh, my God. Why don't you tell the story? Because nobody knows about O.J. <laughs> <laughs> Just do a quick summary. <laughs> I will keep it brief. In 1994, he for sure definitely killed his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman, outside Simpson's Los Angeles condo in June of 94. OJ was famous because he was an uh, American football player. He had made it as an actor, a spokesperson, so he's very well-known and popular. But he fucking killed these people in cold blood. And when a bloodstained glove was found on his property, the low-speed pursuit began with OJ in the Ford Bronco. That police chase was watched by more than 100 million people around the country, or about as many people as watch a typical Super Bowl. Wow. Yeah, defense attorney Johnny Cochran famously was able to convince the jury that there was a reasonable doubt concerning the DNA evidence in this case, which was a relatively new form of evidence in trials at that time. If it don't fit, you cannot acquit. Although the nation observed the same evidence presented at trial, a division along racial lines emerged in observers' opinions of the verdict, which the media dubbed the racial gap. That fucking racist cop helped OJ get off because he had been racist throughout his whole career. I forgot his name. Yeah, me too. But he was racist, and it put, you know, it caused doubt in people's minds. Yeah, reasonable doubt is what got OJ off. And plus, when you're rich, you get away with whatever you want. He had an all-star defense team, Mm -hmm. and they didn't care about the truth or justice. They cared about getting their man off. I do wonder if Johnny Cochran and company, what they truly believed. But I think they saw this as an us-versus-them racial issue for better or worse. But OJ was found guilty in a civil suit a year later, but has yet to pay even close to the money he's owed, he owes for that. He's gone to prison for other shit in the years since, but he got away with murder back in 94. It's kind of sad because it's just like another story of a guy who beat up his wife repeatedly. And when she was done with him, he couldn't take it and killed her. And that's the whole story. And he got away with it. Like you were saying before, as far as you never know who these people are. OJ was a beloved, famous, rich man who could have probably had any woman he wanted at that time. And he felt he had to do this. Right. He didn't even do, I mean, he needs to listen to some true crime podcasts like Murderific and get away with murder one-on-one. He did not take that course because he like made every mistake you can make. I think he was just arrogant and thought, I'm OJ Simpson. I don't need to be careful. I think he was angry and did something, you know, very rash and wasn't thinking about the consequences. Yeah. Or didn't care about the consequences. Or both. (laughs) Yeah. But if your nickname's The Juice, it's a bad omen anyway. (laughs) I haven't met anyone named The Juice that I like so far in my life. (laughs) Me either. No. Okay. (laughs) Well, Byrne, you got just one left. It's number four. The Zodiac. Oh, that's a serial killer. No. Yeah, no serial killers. This is a, um, let's see, what's a hint that won't give it away? It's a family crime. Uh, don't know. Does the name Richardson family mean anything to you? You know what? I've heard about that case. I literally don't know anything about it. That was the same for me, but (laughs) apparently it's big in some places. Uh, this happened in 2006. This story is pretty wild, so... In April 2006, the bodies of husband Mark Richardson and wife Deborah, both in their 40s, were found in the basement of their home. And the body of their son, Tyler, who was just eight years old, was discovered upstairs. 
Absent from the home at the time was the 12-year-old daughter, Jasmine. For a time, it was feared that she might have also been a victim, but she was arrested the following day with her 23-year-old boyfriend, Jeremy Allen Steinke. Oh. Gives a new meaning to doing the Steinke leg. This guy, Jeremy Allen Steinke, 23, was dating a 12-year-old. Oh, that's so gross. Do you condone that? Just for, <laughs> so we have it on the record. It's not okay. Okay. We're on the same page. But also, like, were the parents trying to stop her from seeing that guy? Exactly. Yeah. According to friends of Jasmine, Jasmine Richardson's parents had punished her for dating this guy due to the age disparity. And I got to say, this 23-year-old, like, I don't know, man. What are you doing? Just openly dating a 12-year-old? I don't know. I don't know how he wasn't in trouble with, like, law at that time, but... Yeah. (sighs) According to his friends, he told them he was a 300-year-old vampire. (laughs) So it gets weirder. Okay. Have you ever dated any 300-year-old vampires? No, I have a vampire for a tattoo, but no, I haven't dated any (laughs) vampires in this life. In this life. Okay. Maybe the next one. Mm Mm-hmm. This guy, he's not only a 300-year-old vampire, he allegedly told friends that he likes the taste of blood, which if he's a vampire, it makes sense. He also wore a small vial of blood around his neck. But who doesn't? Am I right? Some red flags. Yeah, exactly. He thinks he's a vampire. He's literally wearing blood on his neck. And he's openly dating a 12-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And he's telling this 12-year-old girl, hey, we should kill your family. It'd be really romantic. They were both convicted on three counts of first-degree murder. Richardson, the 12-year-old who had turned 13 before being convicted, is thought to be the youngest person in Canada, this is a Canadian crime, Uh ever convicted of multiple first-degree murder counts. And she was released from prison after 10 years. She's free now. That's Canada for you. Yeah. I don't know where I fall on that, like, sentencing time. I'd be interested in your take on that, but real quick. Like I said about Casey Anthony earlier, you're free, you're not guilty, or you did go to prison for 10 years and you're out. She's only 23 when she gets out. How do you start your life? You change your name. (laughs) Yeah, you have to. And you leave Canada. (laughs) Right. Oh, man. (laughs) Where do you fall on that? If someone committed murder, should they get 10 years in prison or life in prison? Uh, I have a very unpopular opinion when juveniles commit crimes. I believe your brain is not fully functioning and you're less responsible than an adult. Obviously, there are some 13-year-olds who are going to be monsters, and I've covered a few of them, but a lot of, like, sounds like she was led into that crime. And you don't know what the fuck you're doing at 13. How could you have an adult sentence? But again, a very unpopular opinion. I don't necessarily disagree. Mm. 10 years, I wonder about, or maybe because Mm. she was 10 years and she had pretty much no strings attached after she did, like, there was a little bit of probation. So I think maybe like 10 years plus another five to 10 years of like psychological something. I don't know. But yeah, I I don't, I hate your opinion. And I think it's (laughs) valid. It is crazy. And the guy's still in prison, although not in life. I think he gets out in the next few years. I know you have burning questions that keep you up at night, like, how do I typically unwind? Or, what are my favorite true crime books? If the world ran out of peanut butter, what would my backup water replacement be? Where's Brandon? And when will his ass return? 
Well, I have good news for you, because I answer these questions and many more in the brand new bonus episode that just dropped this past weekend for Tennis Pod Plus members. It's an Ask Me Anything style episode where I answer listener questions. You can listen right now at tennispod.com slash plus, or if you're an Apple Podcast user, just tap the subscribe button at the top of our page on the Apple Podcast app. Your podcast feed will instantly refresh with all of our 40 plus bonus episodes unlocked and ready for your ears. Also, when you sign up for Tennis Pod Plus, you'll get early access to ad-free versions of our main episodes, like this episode you're listening to now, and other perks too. Again, just sign up at TennisPod.com slash P-L-U-S or in the Apple Podcast app. I think we could all use a little break from the uh, death and torture and kidnapping and all of that. Let's shake it off for a minute and review your reviews. Every week here on the show, I read podcast reviews from listeners just like you, and I'm going to start this week with one from Recovery and Redemption on Apple Podcasts. They say, this show should be on everyone's top 10. Top 10 is in all caps, signifying emphasis. They want to emphasize that it should be on everyone's top 10. I appreciate that, but I'm going to recover and redeem you, Recovery and Redemption, by saying it should be in everyone's top one podcast. Okay, maybe not top one. Top two or three? I hope. I hope we can get there someday for all of you. Thank you for that review. One more here comes from Ashley on Good Pods. Ashley says, informative and fun. I was excited that I guessed so many of these correctly. Well, I'm glad somebody's doing a good job guessing these lists because it sure ain't me and it sure ain't most of my sidekick hosts, but maybe I should have you on the show sometime, Ashley. Thank you for that review. And you out there listening, if you want me to read your review, your review could say anything. Don't care. I'll read it. Rate us five stars on Apple, on Podchaser, or on the Good Pods app, and I will read it on a future episode. Now let's get back. Yeah, it's time. Let's get back to the blood and guts. We did it. We did it, yeah. Let me tell you a few cases that I was surprised didn't make the list, or at least not the top nine. You said a few of them. There was Elisa Lamb, the Watts family murders, John Bonet Ramsey. The brother did it, by the way, and John Bonet Ramsey. <laughs> West Memphis Three. Yeah. Lizzie Borden. Yeah. She's been popular this year. Yeah. Black Dahlia. Always. JFK assassination. <laughs> How is that not number one, honestly? <laughs> and then uh, listener of the show up in Wisconsin, Ed Gein. Oh. As well, the original Leatherface. Interesting. Yeah. Let's go back through the top nine, though. So these are the most Google searched true crime cases of last year. Number nine, the Ariel Castro kidnappings. Number eight, John Wayne Gacy. Pogo the Clown, still a good name. John Wayne Gacy, still an asshole. Number seven, Amber Hagerman. Origination of the Amber Alert in America. Number six, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Number five, Eileen Warnos. Number four, the Richardson family murders, the one we last talked about. Number three, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Number two, O.J. Simpson murder case. He got away with it. If I'm sitting in jury and I know his nickname's the Juice, that's all I need to know to convict him. Guilty. <laughs> and number one. Casey Anthony, and her murder of her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee Anthony. There you go. 
How do you feel? Do you feel like jumping for joy or doing jumping jacks after talking about all this stuff? Probably not. Talking about serial killers always gets me excited. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you and me both. (laughs) But we're a rare breed, you and I. Yeah. Although maybe not. True crime podcasts are like the thing right now. So I know. We're not alone, but we make interesting uh, conversation at parties. Well, I totally researched the wrong thing, but I held my own, so it's okay. You did great. And Burn, seriously, I hope we can do this again sometime. And maybe I can guess the list you put you researched. Yes. Something like that. Let's do it. Yeah. Don't throw that away. We will not let that go to waste. Okay. But this was a ton of fun. I always love talking about true crime. I always get sad and depressed when I do it, but fucking I don't know what's wrong with me, but I still enjoy <laughs> talking about it. Really fascinating. If you enjoyed or found interesting the topics we covered today, I only scraped by the details. There's a bunch of other books and documentaries and podcasts that you should seek out if you want more details. And if you're into true crime and into these cases, you should check out Murderific. It's one of my favorite true crime podcasts. Burn, I hope you will give us another plug. Tell us about some recent episodes, some upcoming episodes. Tell the folks at home how to find you. Well, you can find me on Twitter at MurderificBPC. You can find me on Instagram, Murderific Podcast. And you can find murderific pretty much on every platform yep yeah i did a main case called constance fisher it's a crazy story she was mentally ill and she killed her three children she went to a mental Mm. institution she got out and had three more children who she also murdered it's terrible so that's pretty sad yeah yeah and we're on a break right now but in june i'll be back with a case out of canada Oh, just in time. We just finished with a Canada case. Yep. And this episode will come out after that. So by the time folks are listening, that will have come out. uh, You'll be back already. Yep. Another recent series you did was the uh, Fred and Rose West series. Really well done. And that case gives me the fucking willies. There was just brutal, terrible stuff. I remember I, I, I covered them briefly on this show back when we did UK Serial Killers, episode 80 something. And I was researching them for that. And yeah, I listened to your series and sad, but well done. So thanks for that. Yeah. It makes you think that some people are actually born to be serial killers. Yeah, they are pure evil. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're into true crime, Murderific is the podcast for you. Burn, I'm so glad you could come on today and lend your true crime expertise to this fun topic. We'll have you on again. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Uh, there's going to be a direct link to Murderific in the show notes. Until next time, thank you so much for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with episode 179. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>